Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 593 of the Juicebox Podcast. On today's show, we have Grace Bonnie. Grace is the author of the best-selling books in the company of women and Design Sponge at Home. Bonnie is passionate about equity, inclusivity, and supporting all members of the creative community. She founded Design Sponge, a daily website dedicated to the creative community, which reached nearly 2 million readers per day for 15 years. The blog's actually closed now, but it's been archived by the Library of Congress. Pretty cool. Grace was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as an adult. We're going to be talking about that. We'll talk about her life, about being creative, about whatever, you know, whatever questions come up in my head. That's kind of how this always goes, right? We'll talk and then I'll say something and she'll answer and you'll have a good time. Please remember while you're listening that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. You can find Grace's latest book, Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50, wherever you get books. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by Dexcom, makers of the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. Find out more and get started today at Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. The podcast is also sponsored by Omnipod, makers of the Omnipod Dash. You can learn more about the Dash and whether you're eligible for a free 30-day trial at Omnipod.com forward slash juicebox. There are links in the show notes and links at juiceboxpodcast.com. My pets are all downstairs, so they should leave us alone. Just as we were getting ready, Arden comes home and she's got a friend with her and it's her like, it's not her loudest friend. It's her second loudest friend. And so I like, I ran down the stairs. And I'm like, yo, 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 stop. <laughs> like, and, and, and she's like, what? I'm like, you got to keep it down. I'm like, I'm working. And I know they look at me and they're like, aren't you an adult with a podcast? And, you know, and your kids are reading you i love it i'm just like shut up and i'm trying to do something here i went back upstairs anyway uh just introduce yourself real quick so we can keep talking sure sure um hi i'm grace bonnie uh in a former life i ran a a blog called design sponge all about design and i just wrote a book called collective wisdom celebrating a really diverse mix of stories all from women uh, between the ages of 50 and 106 okay i also have type 1 diabetes how long have you had type 1 uh, this year will be five years. I was diagnosed when I was 35. Wow. So to catch everyone up on the couple of minutes that we talked to each other before we push record, uh, Grace gets on and says, um, you know, I've been like following you since your blog. And I didn't know that because she's on the show through like a PR person. So like that was like, Grace, you like struck me very strangely right there. I didn't realize that is what you were going to say. Um, you 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 read my blog. Yeah, my endocrinologist recommended your blog. Oh. Like that's that's how much of a an industry standard you are. <laughs> I mean, that was when I started using a Dexcom. He was like, "You need to read this. This is the place to read things." Yes, it's a parent and a child. I know you're an adult, but this is like the gold standard. Go here, and he was right. Oh, 
I think I should think better of myself. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't really. <laughs> I didn't yes, really. you are. You are the gold standard blog recommendation for the Weill Cornell Medical Practice in New York. Yes. Well, thank you to them. Do you get that I don't know that about myself? I think most people don't know that about themselves. I yeah. think um, in my like previous life when I ran Design Sponge, that was something I heard all the time. People who were like, oh, so-and-so knows of you. And what does it feel like to have so many people know you? And that's like, I don't, I find that's not the reality for most bloggers. Like, I think we are usually by ourselves at home. And so it all feels a lot smaller, but I actually, I really enjoy that. I'm glad it doesn't feel as big as it sometimes could. I think it's actually necessary because when you see people fall into those traps where everything that's said on the internet impacts them so greatly, you know, I, I don't even think twice about it. Like I, I, I got a note last night privately from a woman and she's like, uh, can I get your opinion on low carb eating? And I was like, sure. Mm. And I said, uh, I think people should need to, I think people should understand how to use insulin and then they should eat however they want after that. But you should understand how to use insulin before you do it. And then she kept pushing me for a better, a different answer. I'm like, I don't understand what you want from me. She's like, well, have you ever, have you ever considered it? And I was like, um, I guess not. No. Like I said, but you know, Arden had is a kind of eclectic way of eating. You know, one day it's like a wedge salad and the next day it's, you know, nachos and you know, like she kind of goes all over the place and I, I know I've, I never have. And she said, I'm so sorry to push you for your opinion. It must be hard to give your opinion in public. And I said, that's my whole life. Like, I don't even think twice about that. Like, everything I think is public. You know, like, and and so that took me by surprise. I was like, no, I'm not guarded at all about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think a lot of bloggers are quite guarded in every genre of blogging, mostly because I think we're all so used to copious amounts of feedback, both positive and negative. So I understand the concept of that for sure. But I think if you're blogging in a way that feels... I don't, I hesitate to use this word authentic, but I think if you're blogging in a way that people tend to really connect with, it's because you are sharing things that you really feel about everything. Because when you kind of like take that out of a blog or any type of communication, I don't know, it starts to feel like less personal. And I think we're all looking for something kind of personal to connect with. Yeah. I believe that if I, if I started guarding myself because I was afraid I was going to say or do something that some group of people would disagree with, then the whole thing would be inauthentic. And what would the point be? Yeah. I mean, I always try to consider like different communities that, you know, my words might feel differently when, when it hits their ears. But I think when it comes to stuff like that, I mean, that's lived experience. I feel like Speak, speak to what feels right for you. Yeah, I agree. I have to say, say too, that, and this is wh- where this all comes back around, is just as we were pushing record, I was going to say to you that um, that I my writing of my book years ago really is part of the reason how the podcast happened. Mm. And, and so, but the reason I don't think about what people say about me online anymore is, is because of the book reviews. Mm, oh, don't read them. Yeah, so... <laughs> So here's what happened to me. I'd never written a book before. And then the first five professional reviews come in and they're really amazing. Like to the point where I thought to myself, I didn't charge enough for this manuscript. Like I, <laughs> I'm, I obviously have a natural uh, talent that I wasn't aware of and I've, I've undervalued myself. And, um, and my publisher, the guy that was handling me through the whole thing, he says to me, he's like, man, listen, it's going to happen. Someone's going to hate it. So hold on. You, you know, and I was like, no, no, no. I was like, how can anyone hate it? And then, oh, my God, like the next one, I almost couldn't pick myself up off the floor after I saw it. <laughs> I 
I I have so much empathy for that. I have just basically forced myself to stop reading reviews. And instead, I mean, I get feedback no matter what I do, usually via like Instagram or something. And people have no problem telling me exactly how they feel. And I've gotten to a place now where I feel quite comfortable with that. And I can tell if it's feedback that really should be taken to heart or if it's somebody just looking to like unload about something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough. I don't I don't even bother with Amazon reviews. My wife writes books as well. And she reads all of her Amazon reviews. And I think that is bonkers because it's just people who, for the most part, really just want to let loose because it's kind of anonymous and, you know, people on the internet can be wild. It taught me that if I wanted to do this thing, like say something out loud in a place where just anybody could hear it, that I couldn't go back and care what they thought of it. Like, I just had to do the best job I could with it, and it would land on them how it would, and that that part was out of my control. Because this first bad review, this person hated me, everything, the words, the order I put them in, you know what I mean? Like, it was just my thoughts in general, and I was like, how could the first five people have liked it so much? And then when they started coming back, like, they were, you know, back and forth, I love it, it's fine, it was good, it was at least a quick read, that one hurt. (laughs) You know, because that one felt like, oh, well, it wasn't great, but at least it wasn't so complicated that it took a lot of time. And I was like, oh, geez, (laughs) you know, but now I don't care. I mean, I don't want people running around saying bad stuff about me, but I don't care anymore. So it's a it's a very particular skill to hone to be able to sift through what feels like something that is important to take in and what feels like something that's not. Because when I learned that, I think I learned it by just shutting it all out. And then I was completely unable to accept even compliments that were legitimate from people I cared about in my community. And now I figured out how to balance that a little bit better. But I mean, that literally took me like 17 years of being behind a blog to be like, oh, okay, I it's okay to take some of the good stuff. It's important to take some of the bad stuff. But most people, I mean, if it gets personal like that, I think that's when you represent something to them that is very much not actually you, but they are like hinging it on you. And I had that happen to me a ton. I had someone who turned out to be like a professor at a very, very prestigious school in Illinois, write a whole blog about how he would punch me in the face if he ever saw me. And I felt <laughs> like, wow, like that's a blog about houses, really. <laughs> really got to you, buddy. Um, <laughs> but might, you know, that's... might be upset about something else. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's that's what it. And I don't mean to discount criticism because sometimes it's really important. But that things when they get really personal, when it feels like it's about you as a person, I'm like, you don't know me. You can't you can't critique me as a as a human. I will tell you that like two years into the podcast, I got like a very passionate email from a woman who was just like, "You are talking too much," and I read it. And I was on your own blog. It was about the podcast. I was like, and on your own podcast. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, it's a podcast. (laughs) I was like, if I don't talk, it's not a podcast anymore. But then I I listened to what she said. And over the years, I have what what I realized was is that my desire for it to be interesting got in the way of me being able to let your thoughts breathe sometimes because not everybody's used to being interviewed. And so they take a little longer to get the things. And if people back then, if people took too long to get to their thoughts, I could hear a voice in my head being like, hurry up, shut them down, move on. You know what I mean? And, and, and I don't do that anymore. So 
I totally identify with that. I started podcasting a long time ago because I was terrible at interviews. And I was like, I need to throw myself into the deep end and find my way out. And that's when I realized, A, editing is your friend. Because I still have that voice that's like, this is taking too long. Why are they taking five minutes to end? I I still have that voice in my head. But I know, A, that I can edit out really long pauses if necessary. But that also people don't feel listened to if you're kind of, you know, cutting them off. I figured it out. The only person now I can't have that good of a conversation with is my wife. (laughs) (laughs) I think our spouses are always exempt from most of those rules. But everything else, everyone else, I'm really good at talking to. Anyway, um, <laughs> so my favorite, we'll move on in a second, but my favorite bad review for the podcast makes it just, it it actually warms my heart because the person hates me, but loves the con- the content so much they have to listen. And I'm like, oh my God, I feel like a win. Every time I, I actually, I used to have it on my desktop as my screensaver because it was amazing. Because she was just like, the guy sucks. The podcast is great. And and every time I saw it, I thought, "Mm, you know, I am the podcast, right? Hey, they're still listening. They're still listening. It was just, it's my favorite one ever. Okay. Uh, How old are you now? I am 40. You diagnosed when you were 35. Was that out Mm -hmm. of the blue? Did you have any autoimmune in the family? Uh, I have now since realized that I do, uh, but I come from a, I think, very traditional Southern family that just nobody talks about anything, uh, especially things that are unpleasant or scary or health related. So once I was diagnosed and felt completely blindsided by it, I kind of dug into my family history and realized there was actually a a very known history of diabetes that just nobody talked about. Um, So it, it knocked me for a loop, but I think now, and I've kind of forced my family to speak more openly about hereditary health issues, it's it's there. So it makes sense in hindsight. It just didn't then. Is it just like on the level of Uncle Tom has the sugar or? Uh, oh, the sugar. Oh, I can't. You know, it was, it's everybody in my family is like very deeply Southern and they were all like, oh, so-and-so had the sugars and it was a thing. And that was, but nobody talked about it even then. And I don't even know if it was type one or type two. I don't even know if that matters, but it was really interesting to kind of ask people to talk about stuff and how many people would just say like, I don't want, no, 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 no. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it does matter. And I think it's really important to talk about health stuff really openly. And even if nothing comes to pass hereditarily, it's important to be prepared. So I I wish I had known those symptoms. Yeah. Would have been nice. Right. I just, the way you just said that is one of the more delightful things I've done this, this just listened to this week, just so-and-so has the sugars. And it's a thing. <laughs> That's it. And we just don't look. Don't look at him. He's sweaty. Don't worry about yeah, it. Um, exactly. So who did you go to first with this? Like, did, uh, was it your mom? Um, To talk about where it came from or to get diagnosed? No. Did, to talk about where it came from. Like mm, how, My dad. Because dad. my dad has type 2. And I was originally misdiagnosed with type 2. Okay. So that became, that was a discussion with him about how that came about. I think we both had a ton of internalized shame about like, oh, this is our fault. We brought it on ourselves. This is before I understood the hereditary components of type two as well. And I asked my dad, did anybody else in our family have this? And he was like, I don't think so. And then like a week later, he wrote me an email and was like, oh, actually I found out, you know, great aunt, blah, 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 had this. And then I think my grandmother had this, but nobody ever talked about it, but they all died. Like, you know, and the terrible cliches of like, you know, someone lost a foot or something. There was a lot of that. And I was like, how can nobody talk about that? Especially just in the way of trying to protect us from those terrible things happening again. And I just kind of got a, like a shrug and a face, like, why would we talk about that? So, (laughs) you know, 
wasn't a, me. A lot, a lot of my work is undoing family patterns of silence, but that's it's very southern. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so uh, thirty-five. I mean, that's in my mind, that's almost past the age where you think anything is going to go wrong, right? It's. I mean, I've done so much research now into later in life diagnoses and. It's fascinating how many people are diagnosed like in their 60s. And I've, I, when I announced it online on my old work platform on Instagram, I heard from so many people who said like my mom, my dad, my grandparents got it like in their 60s and 70s. And they you know, also were misdiagnosed because it's so overlooked. And the GP that I went to as at the beginning stages of my diagnosis, even after I came back with a diagnosis for type one, when I sought further advice, he said, oh, do they still actually think you have type one? Because that's impossible. Adults don't get it. And I was like, I, I really think you should perhaps like update your medical knowledge. <laughs> like this is a problem. And I've, I've since switched doctors, but that doctor insisted there was no way I had it. And I was like, okay, what, well, what, what I, don't, I don't need to go to you anymore. What part of the country was this? Uh, I live in the Hudson Valley in New York. So like okay. two and a half hours north of New York City. I see. I don't think it matters where you go. You're going to find people. With yeah. I, I, I'm always uh, compelled to tell people that a friend of mine is a doctor and he, ha- <laughs> he has an age cut off for doctors that he'll see for himself it's, personally. I mean, I found myself through eventually found like an incredible endocrinologist in, in New York City that, you know, I travel two and a half hours to to see a couple times a year who's like a Doogie Hauser type, like incredibly young. He also has type one. And I find having a doctor with type one has been a game changer mm-hmm. because he is so up on medical tech. He's up on advancements in every type of medication possibly related to type one. And so that is a real gift and a huge privilege. Um, but I think even like where I live there, when I was first diagnosed, there was a six month waiting list to even get in to see like one of three endocrinologists within three hours of me. And I was like, this is nuts. So that's why I went into the city and was like, well, it's not hard to find somebody there, but that's been worth it because I think the awareness of technology is really important because it's a huge part of this. I, I really take your point because I think that, I mean, within reason, I'm sure you could stump me on something. But I think you could come to me and ask me any kind of functional daily question about diabetes, and I could either answer it or figure it out while we were talking about it. I I constantly tell people who are newly diagnosed to find a seasoned type 1 diabetic because they will probably know way more about this than any of your doctors will. Um, and, and then especially if you are someone who is a woman or who was assigned female at birth, like the, the the lack of information the medical community has about how type one affects women is fascinating and depressing. And my doctor who I love is still kind of like, Oh, well, I don't, I don't know why that happened. And I was like, well, could that be related to hormones or like something else in my cycle? And he's like, well, maybe. And I'm just like, Oh wow. We don't, we don't really study this very much. Do we? Your girl parts um, are confusing to me. <laughs> yeah. And so right. I've, you know, it's interesting to speak with other people who have type one, um, who've kind of just done that research on their own. And I, I learned more in like the first six months of my diagnosis from just other random people on the internet who had type one than I ever did all the original doctors I saw. Uh, three nights ago, I was getting into bed and I look at Arden's blood sugar before I go to sleep. And I looked at it. I thought, Ooh, it's trending lower than mm-hmm. it has been for the last three days. And I texted her. I'm sure she loves this. I texted her. Is this the first day of your placebo? Mm-hmm. And she said, yes. How did you know that? And I said, I can see it on your CGM. So we're going to mm-hmm. back off your basal a little bit overnight. 
and, mm-hmm. that, and that was it. Like, and I could just tell from, I mean, it just, I, I don't know how else to put it. Like I pulled up the Dexcom graph. I looked at it. I thought about the last three nights prior and I was like, oh, oh, she's getting yep. ready to get her period and she's not on the hormone now. So yep. here's what's about to happen. And it is, it is really fascinating. I mean, in general, the medical community cares very little about women's bodies and, and how hormones affect them. Um, but it is, it's very unique with type one. And I think it's, it's been important for me to reach out to just a wide range of women to talk about all the different ways that that can affect things, especially women who have had children. That's, I mean, oof, well, that's a nightmare to navigate. Did your, did your professional, like some of your professional life lead you to think that? Do you believe? Because you're, I mean, you seem supremely interested in talking to women. So. Yeah, that's a big part of what I do is I, I find the best research. And obviously this is like qualitative and not quantitative research, but I really like doing anything that involves talking to a wide range of really diverse people from different backgrounds, different identities, different parts of the country, just to see how that affects their experience of something. And that's been, that's everything I did at Design Sponge. That's everything I did with this new book, Collective Wisdom. And it's how I figure out everything. It's like, let me ask a large amount of people who may have had a slightly similar experience to mine and to see how that was different. And if I can learn anything from it, and if I do, how do I share that with other people? And so I have like a running email and sort of DM chain going in my life of people who are newly diagnosed with type one as adults. And just, I have like a a huge FAQ sheet. I send to everybody that's just culled from all of those kind of informal interviews over the years. And I'm really grateful for it because I still have friends who have type one, whose doctors just do not take anything seriously and just don't even care to check in. So I think it has to be kind of a community-led thing, as I'm, as you well understand. Yeah, I, as you're saying that, I, I thought that is kind of how I think of the podcast now. It's just a, it's a listenable FAQ list. All right, I'm just going to type in here dexcom.com forward slash juice box. See what I get. Ooh. It's a pretty web page. It says that you could make knowledge your superpower with the Dexcom G6 CGM system. I find that to be true. It goes on to say, now with the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. Wait, that's not what it says at all. Well, hell, I can't read. Let me just tell you. The Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor does something that is just amazing. It tells you what speed and direction your blood sugar is moving in. So the number, your blood sugar is 131, let's say, and it's moving down. Has a little arrow, and the arrow represents a speed. So you can see 131 moving down two points per minute, as an example. That is valuable information. You can set limits on your app to tell you when you get to a certain number. For instance, I get notified when Arden's blood sugar goes past 70, like on the way down, or when it goes above 120 on the way up. You can pick whatever numbers you want. This way, you can make management decisions when you want to, and not just arbitrarily like, oh, I'll test again in an hour and a half after I eat or something like that. You can actually say, I'm going to make a bolus here for this meal, and if I should get over 140, I want to know. If my blood sugar starts dropping quickly, I want to know that too. It has alarms for, like, you, you really should go to the page and take a look. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. The Dexcom G6 is FDA permitted to allow for zero finger sticks, 
It has customizable alerts and alarms, smartphone compatibility for Android and iPhone. You can share your data with up to 10 followers. That's pretty legit. It also has Siri integration and so much more. You can take the next step with Dexcom when you go to my link and click on Get Started with Dexcom G6. The Dexcom G6 is at the heart of every decision that we make with my daughter's insulin, and I think you would love it. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. I'm going to tell you a little story now that is 13 years old. My daughter was four, and we didn't want her to start school without being on an insulin pump. So we went to this insulin pump, I don't know, thing that our hospital put on. And in front of us on a table were all the available insulin pumps. And the Omnipod caught my eye immediately. Tubeless. It looked different. It looked better to me, I thought, at the time. Like, I didn't really know the difference between tubed and tubeless. It just sort of made sense that it would be better not to be attached to something than to be attached to something. And so we started with Omnipod on that day. That was, uh, wow, geez, 2000 and, I don't know, maybe eight? I'm, I'm guessing 2008. That makes sense, yeah. Because Arden's been using it for like 13, oh geez, 2008 plus 10 is 18, it's 2020. Yeah, that sounds right. She was six years, no, no, she was four years old. Well, sorry, this is getting confusing and not selling many Omnipods. Um, Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Here's what you can do there. You may be eligible for a free 30 day, 30 day, 30 day supply of the Omnipod dash. You should go find out. You could ask them for a free demo. So you could try a pod on and see what you think. And Omnipod promises. Uh, geez, the, uh, the music's coming at an end. I'm going to have to talk past the music. I apologize. Omnipod has something called the Omnipod promise. And here's what it is in a nutshell. You can start with an Omnipod Dash today or start with Omnipod today or whatever, and you don't have to worry about missing out on the next big thing. So if you're a person who's thinking right now, well, I do want an Omnipod, but I'm waiting for the next big thing that they do. I don't want to get started now because I get, I'm afraid I'll get stuck with whatever I start with. That's not true. Omnipod promises that you can update to their latest technology as soon as it's covered by insurance. Terms and conditions apply, but they promise. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. I'm telling you, it's one of the best decisions we've ever made. Head over and take a look. There are links in the, boy, I can't talk tonight, huh? There are links in the podcast. Oh boy, let's try one more time. There are links in the show notes of your podcast player and links at juiceboxpodcast.com to Dexcom, Omnipod, and all of the sponsors. I am sorry that you had to suffer through that. Really? I mean, absolutely. That's what it... Oh, wait, does that sound show up on there? Sorry. What happened? I didn't hear any sound. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. For some reason, my school email just popped up. Um, no, no, it's fine. We'll ignore that. Well, no. So I want to go backwards then a little bit. So yeah, I don't know if this is going to seem reasonable to you, but like, what was your first adult job? Hmm. That's a good question. What was my first adult job? Um, I guess technically my first job over 18 and out of, I worked in college, but I guess after college, I worked for a record label, which was terrible, uh, but I thought was going to be like my entree into the world of the music scene. And I was so excited. And then I ended up hating it. And I worked for a really small label in Brooklyn, New York, that was a subsidiary of Atlantic Records. And they randomly took on um, uh, Mike Gordon, who's the bass player from the band Fish. And I was at the time a recovering hippie. And so they assigned me to that 
case. And I will just say that working, working anywhere near the band fish cured my desire to ever work in music again. So I, I left the music world and got a job in PR primarily for a company that uh, covers, you know, furniture and design brands. And then from there, I started my blog design sponge, which was all about home and design and the creative community. And from there, I just kind of did projects as I was interested. Um, and like I did some books and some magazines and a podcast, and I did that for 15 years. And then I closed that down, I guess about two years ago now. Yeah. So, okay. So I understand, I understand the PR thing. What'd you go to college for? I went to NYU for two years and studied journalism, hated it, and then transferred back to a school in Virginia called William & Mary, where I'm from, and then I majored in fine art, uh, both of which, what am I going to do with that? And But I ended up like with building a blog that was all about writing about the creative community. I ended up kind of making a mashup of both of those <laughs> majors, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just, I, I'm an only child, and I was raised to be like quite self-sufficient, and so... I think I realized that both of those kind of half degrees um, weren't going to serve me like super well. So I would have to figure out something on my own. And I I did. I think I was quite scrappy in those early years. And you kind of have to be living in New York. Like, how are you going to pay rent? Everything is incredibly expensive. So I was always freelancing like five different things at once to try to just stay stay, um, out of debt, basically. And, And it ended up working out. I think I was like, in the right place at the right time with the right content. And that's kind of a blog, you know, unicorn when it happens. And it allowed me to do what I loved for 15 years, which was awesome. Yeah. Isn't it? It's such a, an amazing feeling because I launched my blog, I think in 2007, at the very beginning of 2007. And there were, there were, I found out later two or three other diabetes blogs at that point, but no more. And really? I didn't, even, I didn't even know there there were that many in 2007. Yeah, yeah there were definitely were. There were Curry's, George's, Scott's, mine. I think those were kind of like the first wow. ones. And then, um, but then after that, in the years that came after, at some points, there were up to 5,000 type 1 diabetes blogs. And you just, I had no idea. Yeah, you just come to realize, like, it. it's, if had I started later, it wouldn't have mattered. Like it would, like yep. the, the niche would have been filled already, I guess. Yep. And you could come along and do great work and, mm-hmm. and maybe better over what people are doing, but it wouldn't matter if you come in at the wrong time. It's all timing. Um, it really is. Yeah. I think most bloggers don't want to admit that, but I will fully admit that like I incredibly benefited from being an early adopter, including with like social media. Like I remember setting up like Instagram accounts and things like that before anyone thought that that was worth anybody's time. And you know, being being somewhere first, or at least being a part of the like early crop of adopters, has everything to do with the way a brand can grow. You, you'll you maybe you won't laugh at me, but the other night I contacted someone who does my podcast hosting, and I said, uh, "Should I be putting this podcast on Substack?" And, mm. and he goes, "What? Like no one has asked us about that." And I was like, "Well, I didn't stay in this game this long." By by asking after it's happening, I'm like, I'm wondering now, like, is that something that can be done or not? I don't even know if I want to do it, to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. but like, is mm-hmm. it possible? And he goes, I'll, I'll have to find out. I was like, okay. I was like, because that's not, you don't wait for a thing to become a yep. thing to jump on it. It's too late. By yeah. Then. Um, yeah. Very true. So, so Design Sponge, how long did it run for? 15 years. And that's a like a legit, I mean, I've been through your I've been through the site, which is closed now, but still available mm-hmm. to people. Is that correct? 
Yeah, um, it got archived in the Library of Congress, but we're leaving it open for a few more years. Um, so it's still accessible online. And I, I think I lost track of, I think it's like 18,000 posts or something. It was at, a, at its height. I think we had like 20 writers. Yeah. Um, but if for the most part, it was like a core group of 10 or 12 of us who wrote. Grace, you are in the sticks in New York, aren't you? Yes. Can you? Sorry, can you hear the fire? I can, I can hear the fire siren, yeah. Calling the, the, vo- calling the volunteers to the firehouse, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, we live uh, like six houses down from our fire squad, which at first when we bought this house, I was like, oh, we've made a huge mistake. But um, we have had fires very close to our house, and I very much appreciate them now, although this sound, the first time my parents came to stay with us, this happened in the middle of the night, and it does sound very much like a tornado siren. Right. And my mom just got up grabbed all of her jewelry <laughs> and ran down the stairs. Um, so I, I'm quite accustomed to this. It will stop um, in a second, but yeah. Your mom just blows past you with her pearls in her hand looking I'm, for the base. I'm also just like, what nice jewelry was she bringing with her? But yes, that was, she was also like, forget everybody else. I'm out. I don't know where she thought she was going. Ran you guys um, over. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm very used to it. And there are people who live right across the street from that, which is quite intense. But I, um, I grew up in a house that was, I could have hit the firehouse with a baseball and they had this giant, it was an air raid siren on the top of it. And mm-hmm. it rotated, exactly. it rotated while it was going off. So it would like, it would just come around and hit you in the face with sound. Yep. And then it was numbing actually. It is. I drove past it the other day, right as it went off and it set off the, um, the like alarms on your car that are for like a, like blindside de- yeah, or really? the detectors, it just like started beeping. Like there was something and it hit, it forced the brakes to hit as if something was in front of me. And it was just the sheer like volume or the vibrations of that noise being right. so close. And I was like, Ooh, I believe yes, that. this is quite loud. <laughs> okay. So does, so I'm sorry to, I got waylaid there by that bite. So design sponge is a, is a business. I mean, it, it employed people. It, it kept you floating. Why does it stop eventually? I stopped it on purpose. Um, I think the simplest answer is that the blog model has changed. And I'm curious, I don't know if this has been your experience within your niche as well, but the model of sponsorship became incredibly problematic. I mean, we benefited probably the first five years of having advertising on the site where it was fully the blog writer's market. And we could charge whatever we wanted. And it was, those were great years. (laughs) And then I think like, it tipped somewhere around like 2009, 2010 and advertisers got organized. They completely changed. They formed these networks. They forced people into certain rates and it's kind of been downhill ever since then. And at least in my particular niche, the the amount of content that was required for increasingly less and less money, it just didn't make sense to me. And, you know, I, I thought about like getting VC money and that to me is just inherently not my vibe because everything has always been kind of scrappy and DIY with me and my team. Um, and I had some friends who had also had blogs for, you know, over 10 years who all just said like the industry's really changed and that's totally fine. It just wasn't for me anymore. And I think the kind of influencer market has taken over now where it's like very much about the person behind the blog. And for me, our blog was very much about what we wrote about, not who was writing it. Um, So I think we all just kind of sat down and I was like, this doesn't, I just feel like we've kind of had our time. Why don't we leave the party while it's still fun and we're still happy. So we, we announced it and then didn't actually close for six months on purpose. So we could kind of have like a homecoming few months of like revisiting some of our favorite posts, our favorite people. Um, It gave my team time to all work together to find new jobs and make sure everybody was settled and stable before we closed. And 
I, I'm really honest. I think it's like the proudest thing I am of that site was just that a we employed people and supported them, and that we closed in a way that allowed people to find even better jobs. Hmm. So I feel really good about that. Yeah, I, I so I never I didn't take ads in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's, I just I had this very interesting idea that I didn't. My wife worked, and it didn't take up all of my time. And I wanted very desperately for people to be able to trust me. And I thought that Mm -hmm. if I put ads on it, that would take away from that somehow. And so I just, I went along like that. I turned ads down for a long time. And then I'd say 2013, 2014, I started realizing like people don't read anymore the way they used to. Like people were complaining about blog posts being long at like 500 words and stuff like that. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Like, I, this, this is short. Like, how do you want me to get a thought out here? And and I just, I realized things were like going the way of BuzzFeed quizzes. And I was like, mm-hmm. this isn't going to work. And, you know, I've said this on here before, so I'll be really brief about it. But when I wrote the book, I ended up on the Katie Couric show. <laughs> and I'm on a panel with all these stay-at-home dads. Because the book mm-hmm. was about being a uh, being a stay at home dad, and when it ended, she just grabbed me by the shoulder and she's like, "You're so good at this." And I, I genuinely, Grace, I didn't know what she was talking about. I, <laughs> I got a car service to New York. I was wearing a spank shirt. I could barely breathe. I was just thrilled to be on television. I didn't know what it was going to do for my book. Which, by the way, didn't do anything for the book. Like that didn't yes. help it at all. Um, you are not alone. That yeah. is a very com- the TV bump is gone. Yeah, nothing, nothing at all. Actually, the I'll, I'll tell you what helped the book the most in a second. But I, I genuinely looked her in her face. And I said, "I don't. What, what are you talking about? Like, what am I good at?" And she's like, you didn't mm. feel that? She's like, these 500 people were waiting for you to talk. She's mm. like, they stopped caring what the other three people thought. And mm. I have to admit, I, may, I I recognized that I made people laugh a couple of times on purpose. And I was like, I mm-hmm. did feel that. And she's like, you're very good at communicating with people. It's mm. the only reason I thought I'd make a podcast. When, when, when the bogging was going away, I thought, oh, God, I'm going to lose my blog. It's over. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, Katie Couric said I was good at talking to people. <laughs> And that was <laughs> that should just be like your blog banner. The top should just say Katie Couric said I'm good at talking I to you. I keep people. hoping she'll hear this <laughs> because, <laughs> because I also did something for her online content where I told the most mm-hmm. inappropriate story at CBS News Studios, <laughs> which they completely <laughs> cut out of the interview. But uh, later producers told me that people were watching on their computers privately, but they weren't going to put it in the piece. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, that's the only reason I. That's why I made the leap because I just thought mm. like I have a very, I mean, I always call it like a fat kid mentality, but I just think if I'm good at something, everybody's good at it. Like I don't ha- I didn't have a mm. ton of self-confidence growing up. Mm-hmm. And, and so hearing somebody tell me that this thing that I just thought was, I don't know, I thought everybody could do this, you, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and to find out that that might not be the case. And then, I mean, it's blown up from there. Whatever the blog used to be, the podcast is like times a million. Yeah, it really is interesting. It can be a really nice place to like figure out what you like about yourself, what you're what you're proud about. I I think it's a kind of a nice idealized way to think that we all figure out the parts of ourselves that we like by just listening to our own voices. But sometimes it helps to have other people point it out. And I think that's that's something that I definitely learned from blogging was skills that I didn't know I had that I'm now quite proud and happy to have. And I'm now that I'm in like in my post blog life and I'm in grad school to become a therapist. And I'm realizing that these skills you learn blogging, they actually have like 
many real world applications that are, that are great. And I thought like, after I closed my blog, I was like, the hell am I going to do? Like, I have these very weird niche set of skills, but I think as I'm sure you're finding too, like learning to be a good listener and to be curious about other people, that's, that's a really valuable skill. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know, but I'll take it because to your point, um, I'm, what I was saying earlier is like, I never took ads on the blog because I didn't mm. need to. But when the podcast became popular and it ate up all of my time, I thought I said to my wife, it's actually my wife. She's like, that thing better make money or you better stop. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> you, you know, so I started taking ads and, um, it, it really, it's become a real business now. And I didn't, yeah. didn't expect that either, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll be a therapist. So wait. So hey, <laughs> hey, I really, I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in focusing on like medical settings and in particular working with families, like whose children have gotten diagnoses and like how you process that and how the family adjusts to that. Because I think there is this very interesting niche of like, I think in particular when families who have kids that are diagnosed with chronic diseases and illnesses, like it's super challenging. And there aren't a lot of people who understand that. And I think your blog and that community speaks to that, that need for understanding and connection and inform basic information. And when it comes to the therapy world, it's the same thing. Like nobody ever sits down with the entire family and goes, yes, it's just your child that's been diagnosed with this, but this is going to affect all of you. And let's talk about how we integrate that how to, you know, make sure everybody's voice is heard, but how to like find your new version of normal. Like, I think that's a, that's a very important niche of just general support systems. That's a little lacking right now. Yeah. We, we handle that at, by the medical community and people in general, we handle that about as poorly as we handle everything else. Like we exactly. Just, we just act like the thing that's being said, you know, the loudest, the, the most important piece you have diabetes now is the only thing that needs to be spoken about. And it just, it doesn't work that way at all. It changes everything. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's like your entire life is upended. And I, like when I was properly diagnosed, someone referred me to, um, I think it's the Naomi Berry diabetes center, um, on the upper West side in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly for children. And I went as a 35 year old and it was, I felt very weird there. And even that I thought was like, oh, well, all my prayers will be answered. They will have every bit of information, every bit of tech. I will understand everything, even in that setting, which I think is one of like the best settings you could be in. Still, I came away with so many questions, so few answers. And I was like, I'm an adult. Like, you don't need to water this down for me. Like, tell me what I need to do and not do. And they still just like would titrate information to me. And I was like, no, like, treat me like an adult. I would like all of the information, but they really still kind of like gate kept a lot of stuff. And I, I found that incredibly frustrating. So I don't know. That's, it's just something I'm, I'm curious about in this stage of life is like how to better support families where there's a diagnosis of some family member that will affect everybody. Well, how did you, I want to understand how you decided that you wanted to be a therapist. So, Mm -hmm. and, and how far along are you in that process? I'm in the first year of three years, um, which just feels very long, but is very, I'm loving it. It's very cool. Um, I, I think the probably the last six years of Design Sponge, I became far less interested in the stuff we were writing about. So I didn't really care about like furniture, products, even houses anymore. I just, I didn't care about any of the things that were the main reason that I started the blog. I became way more fascinated by the people. So I wanted to like really ask the families in these home tours, like really deep personal questions and I started a podcast so I could have these more nuanced conversations with entrepreneurs in particular. 
And then I got really interested in like, well, what are some of the big societal issues that affect entrepreneurs? And even, even like furniture industries, like we don't think about furniture and design being connected to political stuff, but it very much is. And I started having these like more in-depth conversations and was getting so much out of them and felt a sense of connection that I hadn't in a long time. And I started to realize like, oh, I, I really want to sit and listen to people. And when that goes well, and when you've created a space where someone feels really heard, that moment is so important. And therapy has been a huge part of my life for like the last 10 years. And I realized like, oh, I think these skills I have from Design Sponge of listening and being curious and non-judgmental about that could actually really come in handy. And so working on this most recent book that's just come out now, Collective Wisdom, in the process of interviewing, you know, 107 people about their lives, many of those interviews took on the feel of like a therapeutic session because we were talking about really personal, very vulnerable life moments. And the fact that they all trusted me with that, I think gave me the confidence to finally apply for grad school and take the leap. And I'm really glad that I did because it feels like a really exciting new chapter where I imagined it as like, oh, I'm throwing away everything I did at Design Sponge. But no, like those skills have been a very clear thread into this next chapter. And that's a really nice feeling. Yeah. I interview somebody almost every weekday. And it's crazy that you're saying this because yesterday, I'm not lying. Yesterday, I interviewed a 25-year-old girl. And in the first kind of 15 minutes of our conversation, she felt a little like nervous. So I was trying mm-hmm. to I was trying to ease her into it. And then I started picking away at like, she seems anxious. Like this maybe mm-hmm. is this like her, her normal level and started talking about it and going through it and asking. And, and instead of just keep driving the conversation back to diabetes, I just started asking more questions about that. I was mm-hmm. like, Hey, let me, I gotta ask you is like, you know, is your mom an anxious person or your dad? And then we figured out who in her family was anxious. Mm-hmm. We figured out that she relates to her mother over anxiety. Like they mm-hmm. both run out to like fear porn, the news, and then run back to each other, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And um, by the time we got done, she's like, this was like therapy. I feel great. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, cool. And then she sent me an email this morning thanking me for it. And I was like, wonderful. Like it's, I'm glad you feel better. And she had ideas. Like yeah. I, I was like, you know, maybe stop like, stop watching the news for a week and see what happens. You know, like, can we just talk? They're not any grand ideas. They're just things that won't come out in your everyday life, talking to the people Mm -hmm. who you're always around, you know? And um, I leave those conversations very energized. My daughter makes fun of me Mm -hmm. when I come out of here. Cause she's like, no, it's really, (laughs) I totally understand. It's a, I think, especially in this kind of internet life, we all live now you know, the connections you make with people online are are very real. I I don't discount those at all. Um, But there is something different about being able to like really connect with someone one-on-one and to have someone feel safe to maybe share something that they haven't before. Um, It's just, it's a really nice, it's a really nice feeling. And it's not like there isn't, there is, there are plenty of therapists in the world for the most part. I don't, I'm going to be, you know, one of 10 million white women practicing as a therapist, but I I also really have gotten into figuring out alternatives to therapy as well, because I don't think talk therapy is for everybody. It's incredibly expensive. And I've been doing a ton of research in like private group therapy and support groups and peer-to-peer counseling. And, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of came away being like, yes, I think therapy and licensed therapists are a really important part of any support system. But I also think sometimes just talking to somebody who is really listening to you 
has the same effect. And I think that's what it sounds like you experienced. And yeah. it's really meaningful. I, I can't tell you how much I've taken from making this podcast. It's uh, I, I used to say a lot more than I do now. But if the podcast helps you, it helps me way more. I, I know mm. that might be hard to imagine, but it does so many different things for me. It's a time capsule yeah. about diabetes for my daughter. It's, mm. you know, it, and helping people makes me feel amazing. And so mm -hmm. there's like that part for me, you know, a, a lot of people don't get to make money doing something they enjoy. Um, you know. Most people don't. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there's uh, and it and it has the added benefit of actually helping people. So. Yeah, it's it's really like to be able to provide, like service journalism has always been where my heart is. Like, how do you provide information of any type that's actually functional for people? And that matters a lot to me. And I find myself even doing that now in grad school as I'm constantly like building websites and blogs for people in my class just to be like, oh, let's let's gather all this information that's useful for other students that could be helpful. Let's gather resources and find like a clever way to display them that are fun that people will actually use and I think if you're somebody who really enjoys sharing information, like there's, there's an endless amount of ways to do that. And blogs and podcasts are a really, are a really fun and very accessible way to do it. I agree. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We got pretty far away from this. So you got diabetes five years ago. They thought yes. you had type two at first. Yes. Very common. Um, they, they said, oh, you're too old, which I've had people on here in their sixties who have been diagnosed for the first time with type one. Mm -hmm. So that's a myth. Um, but only five years ago, do you leave with good technology? Oh, no, the first appointments. Absolutely not. No. Um, I even, well, I was, I, I was diagnosed with type two and I think I lived with that for like maybe a month or a month and a half. And they sent me home with metformin, which like destroyed my stomach. And I felt terrible. I was eating like just salad and constantly running and I could not get my numbers down and I couldn't figure out why. And I felt terrible and I kept losing tons of weight. And I went back to my GP and I was like, it's not working. And he was like, well, obviously you're lying about what you're eating then. And I was like, nope, I am not lying. I would like to fix this. You will not find a more dedicated patient than me. Like, come on. And a friend of mine who has a son with type one, because parents of kids with type one are the greatest resources ever. Um, she said like, Grace, I, I think you need to go get your C-peptide test and see if your body's even producing insulin. Like, I don't think you have type two. So I went and found an appointment um, at Weill Cornell in the city, not with my current doctor, but um, with a different doctor in the practice. And I just walked in the room and he was like, you don't have type two, look at you, which at the time I felt quite comforted by that. I now realize it's like a little bit of fat phobia and, you know, yeah. thin people can have type two people who are heavier can have, you know, I, I don't think all that is yeah. quite as connected as people tend to think it is, but he immediately like gave me a blood test. And I think like a day later he called and he's like, Hey, you have type one, like you should really like find some resources for that. And they referred me to the Naomi Berry center um, in Manhattan. So I went there, they told me about all my tech options, but said I wasn't ready for them, which I found problematic because I'm not a little kid. Like I'm an adult. I can very much adjust to these things more quickly. Um, so I ended up having to find another doctor, I think like a month later, who is the endocrinologist I use now, um, who I found through a friend of a friend of a friend. And he was like, oh, absolutely. Like if we can get your insurance to cover at least part of this Dexcom, like you need to do it. And I had a real hesitancy at first. I was like, I'm going to feel like a robot. I hate this. And I did hate it at first, but it helped assuage like the fear I had about going really low overnight mm -hmm. and I think once that was solved and once it helped me really figure out how my body responded to everything from food to movement to hormones, it just felt invaluable. And now 
I haven't gone, I think, more than a day without a Dexcom since then. And while it's incredibly expensive and I think it should be more accessible, the tech part is just massive for me. Like I don't even know how I managed things before that because it's just so confusing and requires so much testing. So I'm really grateful for it. Although I have not made the leap to a pod yet. I just feel like I'm not, I don't, I don't know that that's for me, but I'm, I know a lot of people who really love it. So you're doing MDI with Dexcom. Totally. I know a lot of people do really well with that. Uh, Yeah. Were you married at that point when you were diagnosed? I was. Mm -hmm. Yes. How did that impact your relationship or like how involved does your wife get with that kind of stuff? Because you're an adult. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Are you like, help me or are you like, leave me alone? I crumpled like a wet blanket when I got diagnosed. I, I mean, I had a pretty traumatic diagnosis of like nothing was working. My GP was a total jerk. And he kept saying I was lying about everything I was doing. And that's why nothing worked. And then he immediately said, like, you know, this is going to cut 15 years off your life. Why would you say that? Um, But he told me that. And I panicked. I lost it. And I just, I spent like at least two weeks just being like, well, there goes the rest of my life. This is going to be terrible. And um, Julia is, my wife is the best. She's just the best. And she went into like crisis mode and was like, all right. Um, let's get all the books. Let's do all the reading. Let's figure it out. I read every book ever. I unfortunately read a book that like advocates an incredibly stringent, like keto diet. And I thought that was the only way to manage anything. I look back now and that was just way too intense, but, uh, for me, but she went along with it immediately and was like, we're cleaning out the house. We're getting rid of all the things you can't eat. We're only going to stock things you can eat. She writes about food and is a very good cook and used to be a private chef. And so she took care of food without even asking a question. And I think aside from somebody, I mean, I I would say she probably has the familiarity with type one that you do. Like she is very aware of everything. My Dexcom is attached to her phone. So whenever I'm away or go on a trip by myself, she's super plugged into all that. So I literally could not imagine how much harder this would have been without her. Like she did, I didn't even have to say anything. She just was like, this is us. We're doing this together. How do we do this? And, you know, I think that at some point and probably a very long time ago, she really needs support of her own. And I'm always trying to find better support systems for spouses and parents and people who live with this because it's very stressful and it comes with a lot of anxiety. And, you know, I'm always trying to support her to get the support she needs because I know that she can't maybe complain to me about how stressful it could be or how scared she was about, you know, a particular low that happened or something like that. So I think the people who live with people who have type one deserve their own support as well. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, listen, I'm going to ask some, uh, you just said a lot of really thoughtful things and this next part's not going to seem thoughtful, but is she really (laughs) tall or are you short? (laughs) Uh, I am short. I'm five feet tall. Uh, I think she's like five foot eight. Okay. I think of, I think of her as tall, but I think of everyone as tall compared to me. Did you approach her first? No, she uh, wrote me an email after I wrote a coming out post on design sponge and asked me out and we got married four months later wow because i was gonna say good job if you got her but, but <laughs> yes vice, i vice, am vice versa. incredibly lucky she did well too that's not what i'm saying <laughs> but um i just like wow did you just like she's got that like she's very statuesque and like th- those women are sometimes hard to approach do you know what i mean by that <laughs> I don't know that I approach that the same way, but I am quite lucky to be married to her. And she is very much my favorite person on the face of the earth. My wife is tall. And Mm. she said that when she was younger, she could see boys just look at her like taller than me. No. And then they kind of like passed her by because of that. 
And That's I, so interesting. I don't know if that applies to women who date women in the same yeah, way. I'm not sure. um, I wouldn't. Ima- I, yeah, I can see the point. Yeah I, yeah. I didn't care. I was like, look how tall that girl is. This is great. My, <laughs> I was like, my kids are going to play sports. That's what I thought. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, anyway, good job. <laughs> thank you you're welcome congratulations um but that's very cool that she's got that knowledge so does that Mm -hmm. work out dated like does she follow you on dexcom for example i don't i mean these days no she's not checking in it's still on her phone but like we're with each other most of the day so it's not that big of a deal but like when i closed design sponge i wanted to take a trip by myself to kind of clear my head so i took a two-week trip to alaska and i was very much like off the grid for portions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just by myself, but that was, that was very scary for her as well as my mom. Um, my mom is much less involved and doesn't really understand. Most of my parents, they don't understand most of this with type one. Um, but Julia was like very plugged in. We had plans about like when I check in, like what we would agree, I would like let myself ride a little high numbers wise the whole trip just to feel safe. Um, and I did, and the plan worked and I felt really proud of myself. I didn't have any scary numbers. Like I was driving, for hours and hours through the Kenai Peninsula without cell phone service, without any place to stop and get support. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was like, please like take this really seriously. And I did, I, I packed, I had plenty of snacks and treats and, you know, was very responsible about it. And I think that trip was actually really important to me because I, I, I struggle with feeling afraid of my own body because of this a lot of the time. And that trip helped me like take a little bit of control back and realize like, yeah, if I plan ahead, I can do just about anything I would have done before. I don't know that I would feel safe to do like a giant through hike or something for like weeks on end, but that felt doable and I'm glad I did it. Can you tell me the difference between feeling like an attack could come from within versus Mm. like you were a woman alone driving through Alaska? Like, which were you more concerned about? Uh, The attack from within a thousand percent. I probably should have been more concerned about the other one. Um, (laughs) But again, it wasn't like hiking on my own. I was like sightseeing in a car. Um, And I think I think as a small, a smaller statute like person, I I always am quite aware of my surroundings and who's around me and where my exits are and all of that sort of stuff. But that's just like being a woman um, in the world. And so I was very cautious of like, where's my car? Who's near my car? Like, or do they know what hotel I'm going into? Um, I vetted all of my Airbnbs with people who lived locally, which was really smart. And I made sure I knew somebody on the ground at every major city I stopped in. I didn't actually know anybody personally who lived there, but through the internet and people I knew who were bloggers or makers or creative people of some sort, I found people ahead of time to be like, okay, this is the person I'm going to know while I'm in Anchorage. This is the person I'm going to know while I'm in Homer or wherever. And I had people to be in touch with who knew to like check in or that they expected me. Um, So, you know, I think if you're a woman traveling alone, these are things that you like constantly plan ahead for. And I think diabetes actually prepares me very well for that. Cause I just, I don't leave the house ever without like planning and making sure I have stuff that I need with me. You know, the checking, the idea of checking in with virtual strangers would have struck me oddly up until this year when a family who listens to this podcast put me and my son up for a couple of days in Seattle mm-hmm. when I just, I was stuck and I didn't know what else to do. And I asked online if people knew about a place I could stay mm-hmm. and they just offered and we did it. Yeah. It was really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. There are certain communities through which I will trust more than I would normally. Mm -hmm. And I think I did, I found people through my type one community who were in Alaska, which was great. People through like, 
the LGBTQ community that I'm a part of, I found, and I just felt like I inherently trust these groups of people a little bit more than just somebody who I knew through Design Sponge in general. Um, and that came in really handy. It also just gave me people to like hang out with, which was nice. Um, but that was, I think I'm always way of more afraid of like what my body could do to itself or could happen to my body than I am from something on the outside. So I have a delicate question. Do you guys ever talk about having kids? Type one wouldn't stop me from, from doing any of that. It's an interesting question in that I think we live in an incredibly ableist society that views people with chronic illnesses or disabilities or any diseases as like, should we do this? And, you know, I, I very much function under the belief that most people in society will experience a disability of some sort, probably way earlier than they anticipate it. Mm-hmm. And I've known plenty of people who have chosen not to have kids or who have gone through certain steps of fertility and then maybe opted out of it because of things that have, you know, popped up. And I don't know, I think as someone who lives with a disability, I, I have a really big problem with that. I think everyone is totally entitled to make their choices with their body. Absolutely. But I think society sends people a message that somehow that's like a damage or something. And, you know, you absolutely have to consider what you can afford um, to deal with as in terms of like, medications and things like that. Cause that's a very real expense, but yeah. I don't know. It's also just the risk of having a family. There's 10 million risks that come with having children. So I asked that question a lot of people, cause I'm always interested by how they answer and people fall into camps, obviously. Yeah. But usually type ones will say like adult type ones will say like, well, it's no big deal because they don't see it as a big deal in their own life. Or if they do, then, yeah. then they talk about, well, maybe we wouldn't because it's their struggle they're projecting on the next person, which I think is part of what you were saying, which is people yeah. t- trying to manipulate the outcome of life, I guess, to some degree. Do you know what I mean? Like- well, and it's just, it's frankly inaccurate to assume that most of us won't have something go wrong with our body at some point. It's yeah. just not like an American culture. That's just not, we project the idea that you could have this body where nothing ever goes wrong. Um, and that's just not true. And it's funny, like most of my friends who are moms who have kids with type one, um, they have gone out of their way to foster, adopt, um, support kids that have type one who don't have that type of understanding in their life. And so I've just never known anybody who's who has avoided that so much as people who have opened their arms even more because they understand what that is like. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that that's just been my experience of the type one community. And maybe I've just fallen into a a particularly welcoming subset of people. No, no, I think you're probably right. It's just, I think it's where it along in the process you are. Like I know that I, my wife and I talked about having three children and when Arden Mm -hmm. was diagnosed as our second kid, we were like, okay, like, but that we were just really overwhelmed. Like, I I don't think I could have taken another baby, even if it didn't have diabetes, to be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest at that point. Um, Would I be scared to have a baby that had diabetes now only because I'm 50 and (laughs) my back hurts? But other than that, like, you know, no. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I I agree with you. I just I'm I love to hear people talk, talk their way through it. Um, Yeah. I think disability rights and the way we talk about ableism in America is something I really, really care about. And I just get really wary of people. I think just, I think it's a, it's a thing to be delicate with. I mean, I'm glad you said it was a delicate question because it is a delicate question. Mm-hmm. Like I think people who especially live with more visible disabilities, like get discussed as if those are things to be avoided. But I think the actual question is just like, do you feel prepared to take on 
the inevitable risk that is becoming a parent because any number of things could happen to kids in in addition to type one. And, you know, some people handle that better than others. And it's always a challenge. Yeah. And I think differences in general, just they do well to be, you do well to be exposed to them, you know, like, right. Uh, Exposure just creates normal, you know, a normal feeling for you. And then you don't have those weird, like, that's not, you know, quote unquote, right, whatever it is when you look up at it. And Mm -hmm. it's just something you haven't seen before is all. We were just talking the other day, my daughter's, one of my daughter's really good friends moved out of town. Um, And so this girl is Indian. I would say my town's probably about 15, 18% Indian. And then she moved Mm -hmm. to a different town that was heavily Indian and and not a lot of Caucasian people. And I asked her what the difference has been like. And she said, it's funny, I don't have a lot of Caucasian friends in my new Mm -hmm. place. And I said, why not? And she goes, it seems different there than it did here. And Mm. and I I said, why? And she goes, I don't know. I think they feel like the minority. And and I Mm. think that's why we stay away from each other. And she's like, she's 17. She's having this whole big conversation about, she's like, but I don't have one white friend. She told me from my new school. Mm-hmm. And and she, I said, do you miss it? And she goes, yes and no, you know. But 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 as it's happening, I watch my daughter who grew up in a pretty mixed place, and she mm-hmm. doesn't understand why any of this would be important. Like she doesn't care mm-hmm. what people look like or what color they are, vice, you know, no, sexuality. None of it matters to her at all. And um, and I just think that that the same could be said for everything. You just you need to be around things till you're comfortable. Once you're comfortable. You know, you'll probably stop having the same questions you had before you were ignorant about the things you didn't know. So, yeah. Know. And it's, I mean, I never blame ever individuals for people struggling with questions related to just differences. And I mean, I, I know this statistic only because I just finished a huge final project on this for school. I did my like kind of final project this year on disability rights related to um, therapy. Mm-hmm. And like 60% of America lives with a disability. And it's just disabilities that we don't typically acknowledge as disabilities, um, because I think when we think of that word, we think of like people with physical, quite visible Mm -hmm. disabilities. Um, But a lot of chronic diseases are are in that category, including type one. And so I think if we treated differences to quote unquote differences um, as the actual norm. You, You froze. Grace, super frozen. Frozen, frozen, frozen. Grace, you're really frozen. Hold on. Yeah, you're you're coming back now. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, as the norm. Okay. Yep. Okay. All right. Should maybe I should leave my camera off? Does that make this signal better? I don't, I don't know. know. We were great right up until then. Okay, yeah, cool. It's yeah. probably just rural internet. Yeah. Um, I think what frustrates me so much about the way our culture likes to handle people who are slightly different um, is that we like separate people and we make it seem as if those differences are like minorities or are like so rare or specialties or special needs and all of that. I hate that. Like far more of us have something that is different or I don't know, something that is just considered by mainstream culture to be like less than desirable, but we actually all have something like that. And if we actually connected with those things and saw them as widespread as they really are, I think we would have more of the support that we need because instead we kind of go like, Oh, that's not desirable. Like Mm -hmm. that disability is a problem. I'd rather like find a way to get that out of something. And 
I don't know. I just, I'm very much a fan of like making people realize how much like differences are actually the norm. I think of it as like a light switch culture where people don't want, they just want to go to the doctor and say, um, there's something wrong with me. Give me a pill. I want this to be over or tell me what Mm -hmm. to do so it can stop. And, and maybe that thinking permeates a lot of different things. You look at something that's different, you go, that's different. I just get it away from me. I don't want to have to learn about a new thing. I just want my happy little cycle to keep cycling through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, our culture is terrified of death. So I think that's why we all like in every trickle down version of that, it's just people being like, how do I keep that away from me? I, I don't want to be close to that. I don't want to be close to anything that reminds me of sickness or death or disability. Like it's all just stuff we push away. And I think it would be a lot less scary if we actually just like let ourselves learn more about it. And I mean, the more I've learned about type one, the less afraid of it I am, the more I've learned about every disability that I have friends who live with, like the less afraid I feel. And I just wish people could feel that sense of connection that I think a lot of people in the type one community have with each other. It's just, it's a really valuable support system. About three months ago, my mom found out that she had cancer. She's 79 Mm. and it's, um, we think contained pretty much um, in her uh, reproductive organs. Mm-hmm. And so it took a couple of weeks to find out what was going on. And she mm-hmm. just kept during that time telling me like, Scott, I just want to know what's happening. And mm-hmm. I was like, right. She goes, I don't care what happens. I just want to know what's happening. That was kind of her mantra. Then she found out mm-hmm. about it and she said, well, I'm going to have the surgery. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, I said, mom, it might be really like painful. Like, you know, are you sure? And she's like, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down swinging. And I was like, Mm -hmm. all right. I said, okay, let's do it. She's now five days out of surgery. Like she's just, or or, or it's coming up in five days, I should say. And she she has not changed her tune at all. She's Mm -hmm. just like, if she's, it, it, she literally sat next to me and said, listen, if I die during the surgery, okay. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, what does that clarity come with age or something? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like she's just like, yeah, she's like, but if I don't do anything, I'm going to die anyway. And it's mm-hmm. going to happen soon. And so let's try. And she goes, and if it yeah. works, great. And if it doesn't, well, then I tried. And I was yeah. like, wow. Like, but none of the, like, no matter how much you talk to her, unless she's very good at hiding it, the fear of dying is gone. Like, she just has clarity. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. So it's. I- It's something that I think does come with age. It's like, it's why I wrote this book that I wrote, because Mm -hmm. I really wanted to sit with people who have had the privilege of living, you know, to be 70, 80, 90, 100. Um, Because I think with that age comes just a sense of clarity. I don't, a sense of ease. I don't know if that actually comes. I think there's still, there's still fear. There's still anxiety. There's still things that feel overwhelming, but I think you have lived through enough that you start to understand that you can't change most things. All you can do is change how you respond to it. And that was a lesson I really took away from working on this book was that like, okay, I need to stop worrying about like, what if my diabetes progresses to this? What if it causes this other condition? Like all of these things that I think I sometimes spiral about and if we just take a minute to be like, yeah, most of those things are inevitable. Like as you get older, things start to break down. It's just what bodies do. And sometimes that happens earlier than with other people. Like I did an interview the other day and this girl said, oh, you know, do you consider yourself middle-aged? And then she stopped and said, well, you're not middle-aged. You're 40. You have until you're 50. Then I stopped and I said, I'm actually going to push back on that because everybody's life expectancy is different. And so I think if we assume that like 
45 or 50 is the given. Like we, we may not be factoring in people who just live with other conditions that can affect that. And I don't know, I've, I've really learned to kind of make space for thinking about this sort of stuff, because yeah. I think it does make the big things a little more manageable, maybe not less scary, but more manageable. I'm always very touched when older people who have had diabetes for a long time, just talk about how grateful they are to be alive in general. Yes. I mean, he's not that old, but I think about Victor Garber all the time, a, because I loved alias. Um, and B, I didn't know he had type one until like six years ago. And I like sought out all these interviews with him about like what it was like to grow up in a time where there were no resources or technology or anything like that. And it's just, it's a completely different thing. So to be alive and have type one and to have a body that's still mostly functioning, um, it's amazing. And I find that like, I hate the word inspirational because I think sometimes that like is a little patronizing, but I just really appreciate that there are those voices in the community. And I I wish we actually highlighted them a little bit more in the type one community in favor of like young famous people like the Jonas brothers or whatever. I just, I really think it would be nice to hear from people who like have some road behind them when it comes to dealing with this. Somebody just asked me today if I was going to ask a famous person to be on the podcast. <laughs> I was like, I don't really care. I, I just, I'm like, I don't know. Like I don't care, but uh, in the very first year of the show. So episode 43 is with Victor Garber. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. my God. I have to go back and listen now. Okay. I don't know how good I was at this six years ago, but I remember having a, so I can tell you my Victor Garber story, which <laughs> is I got him set up. He was filming something in Vancouver. It mm-hmm. was coming up on Christmas. I was very new at all this. We had this amazing conversation. It ended and I realized that I had recorded my voice and not his. <gasps> I have made that mistake. Okay. I feel for you. So I, I, I have been there. I had this phone number of this like vacation home where Victor Garber was with his husband. And I just was only supposed to ever call it once. And that was the yeah. end of it. And I called back and I said, Mr. Garber, this is Scott. We just and he's like, Hi, what's wrong? And I told him and I said, I'm so sorry, it's not gonna come out. I apologize. It's completely my fault. And he goes, I'm very busy right now, but I will find time and we'll do it again. And mm-hmm. and he did. And he was lovely. Like really, he, really. He something. seems so lovely. Yeah, I know. Like yeah. I try not to put famous people on pedestals because they're humans, but like, I just really love him. He just seems so, so kind. I mean, to, he just, he left Canada as a teen to mm-hmm. to be in show business with diabetes and he just, mm-hmm. he just went. Like it's it's fascinating, but not not the point. The point is is that I you will probably listen to it, and Victor Garber will be great, and you'll think, oh wow, Scott has gotten better at this. He was terrible. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I've done like six hundred of these, and mm-hmm. um, that's a lot. Yeah, and I am definitely starting to catch my rhythm, like just very mm-hmm. very recently, I think. Uh, so I'm sorry we got away from it for a second, but your your book, I just was looking at it, and it's already like jumping up, like. It's selling very well already. Congratulations. It's only been out for a couple of days. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really happy with this book. It's the most personal book I've ever done where I didn't talk about work. I didn't talk about people's entrepreneurial skills or what they make. It was more about like, what have you lived through? And mm-hmm. what has that taught you? And what did you wish you know? And how has your idea of happiness changed over time? Because that was my, my real curiosity. Because as I get older, I'm what I need and what matters to me, it's constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. And I was just so curious to ask people like what that looks like. And 
I think because I interviewed women, the majority of the book focuses on women from like quote unquote marginalized communities and women of color, women with disabilities, queer women, and you know, where you come from and, and what community you come from really shapes how you view the world and even time. And I was so, so moved by how people were just like, you just have to slow down. Like everything about the culture we live in right now is telling you to rush. And that is a horrible idea. Um, And I finished this book and I felt so much calmer because I felt like, yeah, all the things I'm afraid of, they're not going to go away, but I can try to think about how I respond to them and not respond in a way that is so full of like anxiety and get this off of my plate. Like everyone was like, these fears just keep coming up in different forms. Like you'll always be afraid of, of death. You know, you'll always be afraid of illness. It's just what we've like been raised in. So just learn to approach that with a little bit less anxiety and know that it's a given. And I think that people who live with type one have a, a particularly good understanding of that. And I think being aware of the ways that things that are scary are constantly woven into the things that are also wonderful and joyful. Like that to me is like the meaning that comes with getting older as you get to see those places where joy and fear and pleasure and pain are all like very much overlapping each other all the time. And that like sense of poignancy is what I really took away from this book. Yeah. I'm 50 now. And I would say that you get as much time as you get. There's no way to know how much mm-hmm. time that is. You should be living your life and enjoying your time, not li- not spending your life worrying about getting more life, which is such a weird exactly. Because no matter how much exactly. older you get, you're still going to have that, like that that voracious desire to like, I need to be healthier so I can live longer. And, and instead of, do you know what I mean? It's like you're mm-hmm. you're wasting the time you have worrying about not having time. It's an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, none of that makes sense. These, these ideas yeah. compete with each other completely. And yet that is what people do. Yeah. yeah I mean, know? that's what American culture does. Yeah. It's what predominantly white American culture does. And that was what was so nice about, I interviewed a lot of women who were Asian or who were indigenous and those communities in particular have a very different relationship to aging mm-hmm. and to death. And those are things that are discussed and, you know, it's revered and look forward to getting older and, I, I think that was so interesting and nice to see because I felt like the only option was to always be afraid of getting older. And I really clearly see now that to get older is a huge privilege and it's not something that we should be afraid of. And there are so many people who don't get the opportunity to get older. And so I wish our culture would kind of expand our understanding of what aging actually is because those people are not only wonderful resources for all of us, but we are also resources for them. And those of us who are younger absolutely have something to offer people who are older and vice versa. And I think we don't, I don't know it, though. We, we, we stay in our groups a little bit. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's that siloing again. It's yeah. what like all giant oppressive systems do is just like separate people constantly. And cause you know, those, those oppressive systems get more control when we all feel alone and afraid and, That's part of what I loved about this book was I wanted to remind people like, no, 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 we all have so much more in common than we do that are differences. And if we just ignore the systems that say younger people and older people don't have enough in common to be friends, we would all actually build community because at the end of the day, every single woman in that book agreed the thing that made getting older 
easier and more meaningful and more and with more joy is having people around you that you cared about. And so I think it's never too early to start building community and people with type one have a particular skill. I think that we have learned the importance of having other people around us who are not just support systems, but who understand our experience. And so that really, really hit me hard with this book was like, oh, these are all women who realized what really matters is the people you spend your time with, like how much you have, what your house looks like, what your car looks like, like, you know, none of those things really matter. Like, yes, money matters. You need money to live and to take care of yourself. But when it comes down to what will matter when you're like 90 years old, if you're lucky enough to live that long and you're sitting on a porch and, you know, just taking in the day, like who's there with you? Yeah. That's, that's what matters the most. I, I think that the entire focus of my life now is, finding a place to retire that is central to both of my children and seeing how much time I can spend with my wife before I go. Like, I really don't think much more about it than that. Um, But I can see how growing up, it was segmented into like, you know, meet each other, uh, be young, uh, stay stuck to somebody, make a baby, raise the Mm -hmm. baby, make money make money, raise the baby, raise the baby. The baby needs money. The baby's going to need more money when it gets older. And now you're old. Try to try to hold on long enough to give the kids the rest of the money you're trying to make before you die. Like that, yep. that's literally how my life was set up. And not by anybody, honestly, just, but like you said, like the machine, the system, mm-hmm. how, how it works. And then, yeah, we, and we just miss each other. Like really think to, I don't see very many people who aren't in my uh, quote unquote, like leg of the race, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, which is a shame. Um, but yeah. I, I do my best to stay connected. I listen to my kids' music still, even mm-hmm. when I don't like, even when I'm like, like, uh, I look at my son, I'm like, who, who is this? He's like, it's Dave East. And I'm like, okay, I'll try, <laughs> you know? And then I'm like, I like Dave East and, but I yeah. don't like it for the same reason he likes it. I always talk mm. about the quality of the guy's voice. And my son's like, what are you talking about? I'm like his voice <laughs> is so deep. Don't you love it? And he's like, I don't know that part. I hear the beat. And I was like, oh, I don't care about the beat. <laughs> and so, um, but, it, but yeah, you, to be connected to other people that have these ideas and, and, and these life experiences that you don't have. It brings a lot of perspective, you know, that like desire to stay curious about life is, I think, what keeps people feeling connected to life in a really important way. I was almost going to say younger, but I think that's a little ageist. But I think that like everyone I interviewed was like, I asked them, how old do you feel internally? And most people said like between 40 and 60, even if, you know, Mm -hmm. didn't matter how old they were. Um, And those were the ages they felt most themselves. And that made me feel quite happy to know that like, you know, mainstream culture tells us our best years are behind us after like 25. And that is everybody I interviewed was like, that is absolutely not true. Like you really don't really get to know yourself and feel comfortable in that until you're much, much older. Um, And I, I really appreciated kind of the reminder that really good things are to come. And the more that you invest in finding the people that matter to you and trying to find more ways to connect with them, like the more you get to enjoy those years. And so, Mm. you know, I know that there are many members of my type one community that will absolutely be with me if we all are lucky enough to make it into our eighties and nineties, which I hope we are. Um, Those people are friends for life. Like we can get in fights and get mad at each other and we still are there for each other. And I don't, I don't have a lot of friendships like that, but I think when you have something in common like this, 
this disease in particular, like it, it really unites you in a way that's, that's very important. Yeah. Well, I a million percent agree with you. And I, uh, I will tell people collective wisdom lessons, inspiration and advice from women over 50 is available. Now I would imagine everywhere books are sold. I'm looking at it on Amazon, but other places, right. And, yep. uh, they should definitely buy it because I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to get it from my wife, who is a very head down, working hard white lady who <laughs> always tells me as soon as this is done, then I'll have time. Mm, but she's oh, been saying that for 30 years. So, it's hard. It's yeah. so hard to escape that. It's really, it's really hard. And I imagine the level of anxiety and stress that you all have lived with adjusting to life with type one diabetes as part of your inner circle, like that creates a certain level of pressure on parents. That's like, that's very real. And, you know, makes a lot of sense that that would be something that feels like the thing to do. It definitely changed the course of what I thought my life was going to be like. And uh, absolutely. I never thought this would be, uh, I mean, to look back 30 years ago and to say that, you know, see me at 20. And and if you would have pointed to me and said that guy right there, he's going to talk to a lot of people about their health and, their happiness, you'd be like, I think you pointed the wrong guy. Maybe like, there's no way you would have thought that was going to be me. And, uh, but my, my, I, I don't want to say journey cause that sounds douchey, but my, but my, but my journey has definitely led me to, to this place. And I am as happy mm-hmm. with myself as a person now as I've ever been. And I don't even think I started becoming a real adult until like 10 years ago to be, to be honest. So mm-hmm. I, I think you're in really good company there. I think almost every single woman I interviewed for this book said, like, you don't even know how happy you can be until you get to be a little bit older. Like, you can't really fully appreciate how complicated life is until you've lived just a lot of it. And I think most people are like, man, if you told me at 18 or 20 what I'd be doing at 50 or 60, I would have just laughed you out of the room. But knowing now how that actually feels to be that age, like, it's a form of wonderful you didn't even know existed. And it's also so much harder than you even imagined. But, you know, with age comes the understanding that you can take on much harder things than you thought you could. Some of the stuff that I've overcome, it just keeps, it keeps making you feel like, even though you're older, you feel more invincible. I I can't imagine something that could happen that I couldn't get through at this point. And, and I have to say this too, with a great amount of thanks to, um, you know, through my middle, the middle of my life, really. So my son is Oh my God, my son's almost 22. So when he was born, I quit my job. Mm -hmm. I was a graphic designer at a credit union and I quit my job to raise my son to stay home. And I had what I think most people would classically consider to be a female experience Mm. raising children. And it absolutely changed me. And I, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll tell you that it was about a year into it when I started recognizing that there were things that my wife would have just kind of known to do that I struggled to understand and that somehow by me not understanding it, I was stealing my son's experience and my wife's experience because she wasn't getting to have it. Right. So I was having it. And so now she loses that and he loses her being with him. And I thought, well, I have to figure out what this all means and be that Mm -hmm. person. And so now I I like the joke, Grace, and I don't think I'm far off. I'm basically too overly shy of being able to give birth at this point. I'm almost a lady. <laughs> uh, you know, like I cry when the kids 
are nice to each other. You, you know what I mean? Like I, I worry about the things that you would classically imagine that a mom would worry about. And I think it's enriched my life a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think what you just described to me is that you are a human. And I think that, you know, gender norms and again, like large oppressive systems like patriarchy and sexism just make you feel like those things are inherently female or male. But like, no, we are all full human beings with a complex range of emotions. And if we would just stop separating genders or even, I mean, gender is a drag anyway, but like if, if you would stop separating people by these categories, like we could allow people to fully experience like all of the complicated things that life has to offer. And I think what you experienced is really wonderful. And I'm glad you got to have that moment of, you know, connecting with your son and also connecting with some of your wife's experience. Mm -hmm. And I hope ultimately we will look back and see people doing different roles in a family is not inherently gendered, but just like what it takes to raise human beings is really hard and really complicated. And it takes people doing a lot of different things. You know, what just struck me as you were talking that now there are words for it mm -hmm. and I didn't have them back then yeah, socially, but I've been saying for 20 years that there's no, that tasks aren't gender specific. You know what I mean? No. And the way I used to put it was like, women don't love to vacuum. You, you know what I mean? And, and men aren't thrilled about cutting the lawn. It's just sort of how it ended up. Mm -hmm. working over and over again and in and I didn't see it when I could let go of the idea that I was doing something that I wasn't supposed to do and mm -hmm. just enjoy being my son's father and mm -hmm. in and with the tasks that I had at hand it's when I was I realized like none of this is meaningful at all but I never attached it to anything the way it's being spoken about now in culture honestly but yeah. I think it's the same idea really yeah, we really in the last 10 years, I think, I mean, in the last five years, I think have really the terminology available to understand the human experience has gotten a bit broader. I think it still needs to be even broader, but I think that it, we have gotten options for things that just allow us to like more accurately name those experiences because it, it's so easy to grab like a gendered term or something that's just related to like what we're told from larger cultural ideas. And when you have more specifics and more variants, you get to like actually describe something in a way that invites people in. And I think like just connects us all a little bit more. I just, I think when we only have like a couple terms to choose from, you get put in these camps and you just feel really separate, but especially with parenting, you want that experience to be as integrated as possible with whoever is raising your child or your children. And I'm glad you got to have an experience that gave you a, a broader range of, of feelings and tasks in that, in your family. I definitely did. So, oh, cool. That's a great place to stop. I'm going to let you out of this because you, you <laughs> definitely didn't think you were doing this for 90 minutes. So um, I'm sorry. I kept thinking like, God, she might have something else to do and I'm just holding her up. Um, oh, you're fine. I'm, I'm wrapping Christmas presents after this. Wow. <laughs> incredible like, i should i be shot i should be shot oh god oh no i only i only did it because i knew i would have exams and things um oh, okay. later in the month and i was like if i don't do this now i just won't do it at all and then i'll be that person that just you know forgot to do gifts so <laughs> who's walking around with a book going hey here's my book like, i know yeah, yeah. i'm not that person yeah, i yeah. never do that <laughs> I know. I, it's a very people don't understand you don't give your book to people it feels it's a very no yes, it never does, it does not feel never good. ever ever never I, I just had somebody um ask me to sign my book which i wrote like mm -hmm. eight years ago the other day and as i picked it up i thought i haven't done this in a long time like i was i didn't even know what the, i couldn't find the page that that was clear mm -hmm. for it i didn't but I, it's surprising in my dentist's office 
I love that. Yeah, it's weird. I had a, a friend like order a signed copy. And when I was at a bookstore here signing copies, her name popped up and I was like, why did you do this? You know me, I would just give you a book. But that's, <laughs> you know, it's it's weird to be on that side of it. But it's also what a, what a fun and unexpected feeling like writing a book is a wild process. And I'm glad we both got to experience that. Yeah. You know, my son told me that during the six months that I took to write a book about being a stay at home dad, I was the worst dad he had ever had. Because oh. <laughs> I was just like, I just I don't know, I got up in the morning and sat back down again and mm-hmm. just went and went and went. So uh, I really yeah. appreciate you doing this. And, and oh, thanks for having out. me. This was wonderful. Uh, would you thanks hold- so much. Yeah, of course. Can you hold on one second? Well, first, let me thank Grace Bonnie for coming on the show and for being so delightful. Thank you, Grace. Check out her new book, Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50. I'd also like to thank Dexcom, makers of the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor, and Omnipod, makers of the Omnipod Dash and the Omnipod Promise, for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box to learn more about the Dexcom G6 and get started today. And to learn more about the Omnipod, go to Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. See if you're eligible for a free 30-day trial of the Omnipod Dash. Now, see, I hit that perfectly. One try. I don't know what happened earlier. I was all discombobulated. Uh, This is pretty much it. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it very much. Uh, when you share the show, leave a great review. Uh, don't forget to join the Facebook page, Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes. Uh, I feel like there's something else I should be telling you, but instead I'm just going to say thank you. The show grows when you share it, and it's really growing. Just the other day, the show had the second most downloaded day in the history of the podcast. It's, you know, finishing its seventh year, so that's pretty impressive. What else? Um, I don't know, honestly. This is the part where I just feel like I should be thanking you for 20 minutes, but then it sounds like I don't mean it and gets uncomfortable for me to say, but I really do appreciate how fervently you listen and share. It means the world to me. I'm super happy that you like the podcast and uh, super happy is not a way an adult talks. So this is pretty much over. Bye. Oh, uh, I'll be back soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast.